Well, we've been looking at this discourse. It's often called the Olivet Discord. Jesus Christ is uh, teaching here in Matthew 24 and 25. And now we've come to this, this text here in verses 15 through 35. Uh, Jesus is in, in the context here. We, we've seen the context uh, is, is in the midst of Jesus striving to answer the disciples' questions. So he's, he's given us some Bible prophecy here he, because the disciples have asked in verse 3, if you look at verse 3, Matthew 24, verse 3, it says, As he, that's Jesus, sat on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately saying, Tell us, when will these things be and what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? And so Matthew 24 and 25 are answering those questions. And today we're going to specifically talk about when uh, is Jesus coming? What what are the signs leading up to Jesus' second coming? Well, there's been many people who have tried to predict the dates uh, of the end times. Uh, probably the the one that's the most recent, at least in my mind, is there's a man called Harold Camping. How many of you heard of Harold Camping? All right. Well, Harold Camping is very famous for failed predictions of dates for the end times. Uh, I can't see his heart, but it's, he seemed to be a genuine man who, who loved God and His Word, and uh, he just got it wrong. And, and, and I'll tell you what he says when, after he got it wrong. But, uh, but let me tell you what happened. First of all, that Mr. Camping predicted that Jesus Christ would return to earth on May 21st, 2011. And he said that the Christians would be taken up to heaven in the rapture, and there would then follow five months of plagues on the earth, which he described as, as God's judgment on the earth. He also predicted the final destruction of the world would occur on October 21st, 2011. And this failure, by the way, wasn't his first failed prediction. In fact, uh, he actually predicted that Judgment Day would occur back in 1994, which, of course... None of those things actually came about. Uh, all three of the predictions were failures. And you can see in the United States, they had uh, millions and millions of dollars. They were, they were putting this stuff everywhere, on billboards and people's cars and trucks and everywhere. And, uh, it was even on TV, radio, and so forth. And then when these dates went wrong, then they, they, they were trying to scramble to, to uh, give an explanation why, why they got it so wrong. And you, you might say, well, how did Harold Camping explain the, the failed prediction on May 21st, 2011? Well, uh, I actually have a quote here, and he's, he's, he called it a, because people were looking around saying, well, uh, we didn't see any rapture happen. There's all these Christians who are still here, so how do you explain that? Well, he, he called it a, spiritual, I quote, spiritual judgment that had occurred on May 21st. And he said that God would then destroy the universe on October 21st, 2011. Well, interestingly enough, uh, Harold Camping ended up uh, having a stroke the very next month after his failed prediction. And then since the date passed, of course, there was no actual apocalypse that happened then, then what? Well, Mr. Camping ended up admitting in a private interview that he no longer believed that anybody could know the time of the rapture or the end of the world. 
in March of 2012, he stated that his attempt to predict a date was, quote, these are his words, sinful, and that his critics had been right in emphasizing Matthew 24, verse 36. If you look in your Bibles, you'll see what Jesus says in Matthew 24, verse 36. He says, but concerning that day and hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven nor the Son, but the Father only. And, of course, Jesus is talking about His his return, His, his second coming there. And so he said, uh, he said it was sinful for Him to be trying to predict these dates. He also added, and I appreciate His words, and, and again, I'm quoting, He added, He was now searching the Bible even more fervently, not to find dates, but to be more faithful in my understanding. End quote. So I appreciate his humility in saying this to the world, that he got it wrong and he had, was stopped trying to set these dates. Instead, he's just going to look at God's Word try to be faithful. Good advice, by the way. Good advice from somebody who had been there, tried, and failed. And that's what we want to do. We come to God's Word, this Olivet Discourse. We want to look at God's Word, hopefully, hopefully through... Through, through God's eyes, sometimes it's hard for us to set aside our, our ideas and presuppositions, but we want to try as best we can. So the context is all about Jesus talking to his disciples here, striving to answer these questions uh, about his, his return, the signs of, of Jesus coming again. And so that's the context. So let's, let's, let's jump into the text here and, and look at the, there's some various events that Jesus talks about that that are leading up to His coming. These, these are going to take place before Christ's return. And the first one He mentions is right there in verse 15. Well, actually, we've already mentioned a few. But in this text, the first we're looking at is in verse 15. So look at verse 15. Jesus says, So when you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by the prophet Daniel, standing in the holy place, let the reader understand. I just want to stop there for a moment because some, some of us may not be familiar with what Daniel talks about in this abomination of desolation. Well, this event is something that's going to take place as Daniel the prophet prophesied. By the way, Daniel was prophesying around the year 600 B.C. approximately. So we're, we're talking about 600 years before the time of Jesus Christ. And it's amazing... Uh, what, what Daniel got right about other prophecies that ended up coming to be true, and you can read about those, but that's not our point here. So, so what is the Apostle Matthew talking about? Well, you, you have to go back to uh, Daniel chapter 9. I'll put it on the screen here for you. You can see what Daniel is writing about that Matthew's referring to. That's, so let's read this together. Matthew 9 verse 24 says, Seventy weeks are decreed about your people and your holy city. Uh, notice, by the way, the context. Daniel's talking about his people, his city. So obviously, it's pretty clear in the context. It's talking about Jerusalem and Israel. All right, what, is, what does he say? It says, to finish the transgression, to put an end to sin, and to atone for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal both vision and prophet, 
and to anoint a, a most holy place. Know therefore and understand that from the going out of the word to restore and build Jerusalem to the coming of an anointed one, a prince, there shall be seven weeks. I'll explain this in a moment, but let's just read through for the moment, okay? He goes on, he, uh, Daniel says, Then for 62 weeks it shall be built again with squares and moats, but in a troubled time. And after the 62 weeks, an anointed one shall be cut off and shall have nothing. And the people of the prince who is to come shall destroy the city and the sanctuary. Its end shall come with a flood, and to the end there shall be war. Desolations are decreed. And he shall make a strong covenant with many for one week, and for half of the week he shall put an end to, the, to sacrifice and offering. And on the wing of abomination shall come one who makes desolate until the decreed end is poured out on the desolator. <coughs> Excuse me. So that ends this, this particular prophecy on the 70 weeks of Daniel, which Matthew's referring to. Now I want you to notice, again, I've, I've highlighted this here for you in the next... Uh, we see that this prophecy concerns a specific group of people in a specific location. It is, it is about the Jews and only the Jews and the city of Jerusalem. Because Daniel 9.24 specifically says, your people, and that's Daniel's people, and his city, the city of Jerusalem. So, and I say that, and that is crucial to understand the context, because there are people who rip this out of their, its context, and, and seem to ignore those words and say that this applies to the church or to other groups of people. And if you do that, you are actually misinterpreting God's word because God clearly said this is Daniel's people, the Israelites, the Hebrews, or the Jews, whatever you want to call them, and it's about Jerusalem. That's crucial to understanding this. All right? Now, there's, another, there's a few other things you need to understand about the 70 weeks of Daniel. Daniel's prophecy involves 70 weeks, a total of 70 weeks. Now, when Daniel says weeks, he doesn't mean seven-day period, okay? Uh, the Hebrew word week actually means a week of years. It's literally seven years. So what we have here is 70 times seven years. I hope that makes sense. So we got 70 sevens, and if you, if you know your math, that's a total of 490 years. And so this period of 490 years is then broken up into three parts, according to Daniel. And I've given you a little uh, diagram there. You can see that, that during uh, seven weeks, or 49 years, the city of Jerusalem would be rebuilt, and the worship would be established. And then two, after 63 weeks, or 434 years, Messiah would come to Jerusalem, and he died. Uh, and by the way, the context here is this the last earthly week of Jesus' life. Matthew 24 and 25 is probably taking place on a Tuesday. So it's, it's that Passion Week leading up to Jesus' death, that last week of his earthly life. And so, so we, we can see this taking place here. And then number three, the prince, uh, Daniel says, will make an agreement with the Jews for one week. He's going to make an agreement for seven years. So Matthew 
is referencing this. You need to understand that for what, what Matthew's saying to make sense. It'll help you understand the book of Revelation too. So the decree to rebuild Jerusalem, you can see over there, was 445 B.C. King Artaxerxes uh, decreed, or, or some, some say it's Cyrus. Uh, if you read the book of Ezra, chapter 1, you can read about that. But, uh, Cyrus said that the, the Jews, the Israelites, could go back and rebuild Jerusalem. And they did. That, that prophecy actually came true. And so the city was rebuilt during troubled times. A helpful book, uh, at least I've found helpful, is Sir Robert Anderson's book called The Coming Prince, which is talking about Jesus Christ. Uh, he proved that there uh, was exactly 482 prophetic years. That is, if you go with 360-day years. So, if you're really good at math, you might be wondering, okay, we don't have 360 days in a year, so this is confusing. Well, that's that's how you have to figure it out, I think. But he said that um, there was there was 482 prophetic years between the giving of that decree by the king and the day that Jesus actually rode into Jerusalem on that donkey. We we often call that Palm Sunday. So exactly 482 prophetic years. But we, we must account for the remaining week that Daniel talks about. There's, there's already been 69 weeks that have come to pass, prophetically speaking. But there is yet one more week, seven years that hasn't happened yet. So where does that fit into Bible prophecy? Well, note that the same city that was rebuilt, Daniel says in verse 26, is also going to be destroyed. Because Daniel says about Jerusalem, he says, by the people, the prince that shall come. That was the Romans. The Romans destroyed Jerusalem in A.D. 70. Uh, totally destroyed it, including the temple, which Jesus talks about here. And so the, the prince that shall come has a name. Well, he's described in the book of Revelation as Antichrist. He's described as Antichrist. So this event took place, uh, the, the first, or this destruction here of Jerusalem took place in AD 70, but the Jewish nation would be spared. The city is going to be restored again. Now, you probably know there's no, no temple, not a Jewish temple anyway, in Jerusalem. So, for, so, for this to happen then, the Antichrist is going to make this peace treaty with Israel. He's going to let them rebuild their temple. Uh, he has to, because Daniel talks about sacrifices continuing. And so, if he lets them rebuild their temple, that's, he's going to, he's going to become uh, quite popular with the Jews, with the Israelites. So, some future date, the Antichrist is going to make a covenant with the Jews for the seven-year period of time. Uh, you can see, according to this little diagram here, uh, they're halfway through the seven-year tribulation period, which is seven years. So halfway through would be three and a half years. He's going to break his peace covenant with Israel. The Bible says he's going he's to put an end to the sacrifices. Daniel talked about that. We just read it. And so this missing week fits in during the tribulation period, a seven-year period of time. This is one reason we know it has to be seven years. 
Uh, Revelation backs that up with the exact amount of days, by the way. So the Antichrist is going to agree to protect Israel against their enemies. He's going to permit them to rebuild their temple. If you look at Daniel 9, 27, it talks about the restoration of the sacrifices. Uh, If you haven't noticed, Israel is not sacrificing currently, but they will sometime in the future. So the logical place then for the the seven-year period of time, at least in my opinion, I know this is highly debated, would be for this to take place after the rapture of the church. So if you don't believe in the rapture of the church, just listen closely, okay? Follow me, all right? Try to follow this. Because I am a, personally, I'm a pre-tribulation rapturist, okay? By that I mean rapture takes place before the seven years, that last week of Daniel. Then there's this tribulation period of seven years. And according to 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, this is one reason why I'm a pre-tribulation rapturist. Uh, but in 2 Thessalonians 2, it indicates that the Antichrist can't be revealed until the one who is called a restrainer is removed from the earth. The context, I believe, is clearly showing the restrainer is the Holy Spirit. So the Bible is clear, the restrainer, the Holy Spirit, indwells believers. Uh, the Bible says we are the temple, we the body of Christ, the church, are the, the temple of the Holy Spirit. So in order for the Holy Spirit to remove, be removed, you must remove the believers. And so once the believers are removed during the rapture, then the Holy Spirit's going to go, and once the church is out of the world, then Satan is going to produce his masterpiece, which of course is the Antichrist. Are you with me? So Antichrist is then going to make this peace covenant for seven years, and then at the three and a half year mark, he's going to break his peace covenant with Israel, and he's doing what Matthew 24 verse 15 talks about. He's going to he's going to set himself up to be Antichrist will make a peace covenant for seven years. But after three and a half years, then he'll break that agreement. He will then move into the Jewish temple and proclaim that he is God. You can reference, for example, Second Thessalonians chapter 2 and Revelation chapter 13. Now let's take a look at the response, which we see in verses 16 through 20. When the Antichrist desecrates the restored Jewish temple and demands that all the world worship him as God, Then the second three and a half years of the tribulation will begin. Jesus said, let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. That statement is a warning of the severity of the Holocaust to come and an exhortation to run from it. Because of their closeness to the Antichrist headquarters in Jerusalem, those in Judea will be in the greatest danger. The Antichrist anger will be vented against the Jews and also against all Christians. Jewish Christians will be in the greatest jeopardy of all. Since God first called and made his eternal covenant with Abraham, Satan has sought to destroy God's chosen people, the Jews, and their God-ordained nation of Israel. To have destroyed the Jews would have been to destroy God's redemptive plan for mankind because the Bible says that salvation is from the Jews. To have eliminated the Jews before Jesus was born would have broken the line of promise 
and redemptive ministry of the Messiah, who had to be a descendant of Abraham and of David. However, having failed at that, Satan still seeks to destroy individual Jews in order to prevent Christ's ultimate redemption of them, and to destroy Israel as a nation in order to prevent its restoration under its divine rule. The only hope will be to run for safety, which is symbolized in the exhortation to flee Judea as quickly as possible and take refuge in the mountains. From the book of Zechariah, we learn that not every Jew will be successful in the attempt to escape. Zechariah chapter 13, verse 8 says, It will come about in all the land, declares the Lord, that two parts in it will be cut off and perish, but the third will be left in it. And I will bring the third part through the fire, refine them as silver is refined, and test them as gold is tested. Many will succeed in their flight to the mountains, which is probably to the east and south of Jerusalem, perhaps to the cliff caves around the Dead Sea and also the hills of Moab and Edom. The Bible says in Revelation 12, verse 14, says that the two wings of the great eagle were given to the woman in order that she might fly into the wilderness to her place where she was nourished for a time and times and half a time from the presence of the serpent. Now let's take a look at the various perils that Matthew 24 tells us about. We see in verses 21 and 22 that there is great tribulation. God's message for Israel is that things are going to get worse before they become better. That nation and its people will suffer treachery, desecration of their rebuilt temple, indescribable persecution and brutal slaughter that will be just unparalleled in history. So in verses 23 through 28, Jesus talks and warns them about deception that could take place. Look at verse 23. Then if anyone says to you, look, here is the Christ, or the Messiah, or there he is, do not believe it. For false Christs and false prophets will arise and perform great signs and wonders, so as to lead astray, if possible, even the elect. By the way, that's not possible, because Jesus says it's not. Verse 25, see, I have told you beforehand. So if they say to you, look, he is in the wilderness, do not go out. If they say, look, he's in the inner rooms, do not believe it. For as the lightning comes from the east and shines as far as the west, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. Wherever the corpse is, there the vultures will gather. So in, in, in those verses, Jesus is warning them about deception. So those who actually heed Jesus' advice and flee into the wilderness, the mountains, the the caves, Jesus' concern for them is they're going to be vulnerable to false teaching and promises. I mean, think about it. It's not going to be an easy life living in a cave out, you know, somewhere out there. Uh, they're going to leave their homes probably only with the clothes on their back. It's not going to be easy. So they're going to have, uh, they're going to probably feel insecure. They're not going to have a lot of material possessions. Maybe not sure how are they going to eat and drink, look after families and so forth. So many of them will have left families. They'll, they'll leave fa uh, friends, homes, jobs, and so forth. They're going to leave all that behind. And 
It might even be with strangers out there. You might be wondering about things they're hearing. Has Jesus come? Jesus says, beware, beware. There's many false messiahs, false Christ, false teaching. Well, then he goes on to talk of of his coming. Jesus talks about his, his coming. He calls himself the Son of Man here, which is showing his deity as well as his humanity in one person forever. Verse 29 through 31. In, the, in these verses, by the way, Jesus is really giving us a vivid picture of the moment of his appearing. When he actually comes, uh, we're going to see the sign of his coming again and of the end of the age. So let's read this together. Verse 29. Jesus says, immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light and the stars will fall from heaven and the powers of the heavens will be shaken. Then will appear in heaven the sign of the Son of Man. And then all the tribes of the earth will mourn and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. And He will send out His angels with a loud trumpet call. They will gather His elect, the believers, from the four winds or the four corners of the earth and from one end of heaven to the other. Oh, what an amazing scene we have here. This is, this is awesome, by the way, isn't it? And so we have a number of questions that we can answer here in this particular text. The first one is, is this. When will Jesus return? Now, Jesus isn't setting dates, but there's, there's a few things that happened before his return. So Jesus states the central sign of his return. Notice in, in, uh, verse 29, he says it's going to happen immediately after the tribulation of those days. In other words, after that, that last three and a half years of the seven year tribulation or the, that last week of Daniel's 70 week prophecy. So this is after the, all that horrible stuff we read about in the book of Revelation. And the context makes clear those days are referring back to the previous context. So read verses 4 to 28. So those days, Jesus is talking about those days. So verses 4 to 28 is primarily talking about, uh, uh, well, just building up to the end of the tribulation. So that's when Jesus is going to come back at the end of that seven-year tribulation. When Next question that we can answer here is when or what will happen in the heavens? Jesus mentioned some cool, really, uh, well, it's not cool. It's, it's going to be disastrous when you look at this, actually, isn't it? Just disastrous because Jesus is actually going to shake things up. And how is he going to do that? Well, you remember, Jesus is the creator of the universe. If you don't believe me, read Colossians 1, read Hebrews chapter 1. Uh, Hebrews chapter 1 verse 3 says, Jesus holds all things together by the word of his power. He created everything through words. And Jesus continues to sustain the entire universe through his power. And when he wants to destroy it, all he has to do is stop holding it together and it's just going <laughs> to, it's going to be done. And he has the ability to, to control the, the stars, the sun, the earth, and all, the, all this sort of stuff. He is the sustainer. He is the creator. And th- this is just amazing power of Jesus here. He's the one who is controlling gravity. He's the one who, and so he's, the, obviously we see gravity going to be weakened. The, 
orbits of stars possibly changing. Planets are just fluctuating all over the place. I mean, the sun is, is just going to do stuff like it's never done before. And, of course, that's going to affect the moon. It's, it's just going to be amazing. So that is all building up to Christ's return. But what is the supreme sign of Christ's return? Verse 30 says, Then will appear in heaven the sign of the Son of Man. What is that? Well, the sign of signs, if you will, is actually Jesus Christ himself. In other words, Jesus is going to be the supreme and final sign of his coming. It's, it's building toward him. Not all this cool stuff happening. It's not about that. So in the midst of the world's blackness, Jesus is going to come back. He's going to manifest himself in his infinite and undiminished glory. Everybody's going to see King Jesus like they haven't seen him before. Except for the angels in heaven. So Jesus is the supreme sign. And how will King Jesus come? It's interesting that the Bible says two things here in verse 30. It says he will come with power, number one. This is not some little meek and mild baby Jesus stuck in a manger. right? That was his first coming. But Jesus' second coming, totally different here. He's coming with power. We see him coming, conquering, destroying his enemies. Revelation chapter 19 says that uh, during this battle of Armageddon, he just wipes them out. His, his tongue is like a, a, a double-edged sword, just destroying everyone in his path. And then the Bible says in Revelation 19 that his, his enemies are going to be cast into the lake of fire. The Antichrist is going to be cast into the lake of fire. By the way, that's eventually where Satan, the Bible says, Satan is also going to end up in the lake of fire. So we see Jesus coming with great power. This is not some little meek and mild Jesus here. This is powerful Jesus. But it also says there in verse 30, He's going to come with glory. Glory. You have to understand, no human being has yet, at least visibly, seen the full unveiled glory of Jesus Christ. When He walked on earth, Nobody could see his unveiled glory unless they would be consumed and die. No one will ever see it until Jesus appears here at his second coming. And the Bible says all mankind is going to see King Jesus in his unveiled glory. And every knee will bow and worship King Jesus. If they don't, they'll be dead. And how will King Jesus use his messengers? He has messengers. An untold number of angels who are his messengers in verse 31 says, uh, says they're going to, they're going to go out by Jesus' command. Jesus will blow the trumpet. The angels will be released to gather the, the Christians from all over the earth to bring them to King Jesus. This is interesting because in ancient Israel, you have to understand trumpets, you know, this is all before telephones and telegraph and computers and internet you know all the stuff we have modern technology we have today so trumpets were used in ancient israel to announce important gatherings for example if the king wanted to announce something how how would he get the word out he'd have messengers heralds guys with trumpets getting people's attention and that's the imagery that's being used here the sound of the 
the, the trumpets will signal the assembling of God's saints on earth. Can you imagine these Christians who, who are hiding in caves, hiding out, just waiting for Jesus to come back and, and, and then to, to, I'm assuming they'll be able to hear the trumpet sound. The, the heavenly messengers come and, and take them. How glorious a day that would be. So the gathered ones, the Bible says in Revelation, will include then the 144,000 Jewish believers. Those 144,000 Jewish believers, by the way, are witnesses for Jesus Christ who are, who are miraculously protected by Jesus. There will be many converts, many people saved during the tribulation time. And, uh, by the way, the, these, these ones who are gathered will also include the Old Testament saints. They're going to be gathered out of their graves. They're going to join with the redeemed spirits. And so they're all going to be there. They're all going to be assembled together before King Jesus. He's the one who, is, who is, has announced this. He is the king. He's bringing his people to himself. Well, as Jesus, often, as Jesus often does, he uses parables to teach truth. And that's what we see Jesus doing in this next little section. Let's have a look at the lesson of the fig tree, which Jesus is using to, to help us understand what he's just been teaching. All right, so starting in verse 32, we have the lesson of the fig tree. The Bible says, from the fig tree, learn its lesson. As soon as its branch becomes tender and puts out its, put, puts out its leaves, you know that summer is near. So also when you see all these things, you know that he is near at the very gates. Truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. Well, that's an encouraging way to end here. We'll talk about that in a moment, but in light of the fact that Jesus' parables were given for a specific reason, what is Jesus trying to do here? He's, he's giving this parable for the sake of helping his disciples understand his teaching. It's evident he, he told the parable of the fig tree here to give further understanding about his second coming. That's the context. So the lesson of the fig tree is helping us to understand about Jesus return. Well, the parable is very short. It's only there in verse 32. And then Jesus supplies that parable. What is Jesus doing in the parable in verse 32? He's, he's reminding them of a very well-known fact in Jesus' day. Uh, if you don't have a fig tree or never seen one or don't know about figs, bear with me, all right? Uh, my understanding is that when the, when the sap begins to flow into the branches of a fig tree, it would make them tender. And that's why Jesus talks about that here. And then what would happen is when the, the, the branches become tender, it's making way for the, the new leaves to appear on the tree. And then, of course, then it makes way for the fruit. And Jesus is saying, when that happens, then you know summer is near. So anybody looking at a fig tree could look at the fig tree and say, hey, summer is near. Well, we kind of do that, don't we? Right? You know, it's wintertime now and all these deciduous trees have lost their leaves and, and they've, they've gone dormant during the cold time, right? Well, how do we know summer is near? Well, we know summer is near when we see 
see the, the leaves starting to get, or the, sorry, the trees starting to get the leaves on the trees, right? And we know that spring is here. We, we know it's warming up and, and, you know, and eventually summer will be here. And so Jesus is using this to, to teach about his second coming. And so in this present parable, Jesus was illustrating to his disciples that when the signs he had just been describing, when those things begin to transpire, then guess what? Jesus is saying, hey guys, I'm coming back. Be ready. My return is very near. So we don't know the dates, but Jesus is obviously giving us some, some, some clear hints, okay? You know the time is short. It, it's near. Well, how does he apply this parable? Well, verse 33, uh, we need to explain a first, few things, verse 33. Notice in verse 33. What, what is verse 33 talking about? Jesus says, all these things. Well, all these things can only refer to the context here. They're referring to what he's just been talking about. He's talked about the birth pains, starting way back in verse 4. He's talked about in verse 15, the abomination of desolation. Uh, Starting in verse 16, he's talked about some coming perils leading up to his return. And then he's talked about very some amazing things happening in the heavens, some catastrophic upheaval in the universe. That is those things that will indicate that King Jesus is near. And then in verse 34, again, this is another one that you may not understand. Verse 34 talks about this generation. Do you see those words? Well, there's some confusion. Which generation is Jesus talking about here? Is Jesus talking about the generation during the apostles' time? During that time? That some have interpreted it that way. So which generation then is Jesus talking about? Well, Again, the context is helpful here. Uh, this, I think, has to refer to the generation living during the time that Jesus is talking about. The end time period here, leading up to his second coming. doesn't seem to make sense if you say it any other way. So if, if you're interpreting as, okay, this is the generation right before Jesus comes back, then the signs of Matthew 24 and 25 are going to be experienced within one generation. It's that generation living when Christ returns. And who are these people? Who are these people? Well, this generation is going to be then composed of, by the way, not just the Jews. It's also Gentiles, the, the non-Jews who are living during this time period, who have, who have come to Christ. They put their faith in Christ alone. These are people who weren't raptured, but they, they're, they're living during the, that last week of Daniel's 70 weeks, that seven-year period we call the tribulation. And these are people who have come to know Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. And so among these people, there's going to be many who are going to come to salvation during this tribulation, uh, probably uh, during, uh, through the witness of the 144,000. Uh, as well as, according to Revelation 14, the preaching of the angelic messenger. So there's various ways they could come to know Christ. I'm assuming they can also read the Bible during this time. And verse 35 is also interesting. This is how Jesus ends this particular text. He, he talks about earth and heaven passing away. You know, to some that might be bad news, but when, when is that going to happen? When is that going to happen? Well, you have to read other portions of Scripture to help you out here. 
that event's going to happen uh, or occur after the thousand-year reign of Jesus Christ. For example, look, look at this. 2 Peter 3, verse 10, talks of the destruction of the present earth and heaven. It says, The day of the Lord will come like a thief, and the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved in the earth, and the works that are done on it will be exposed. Revelation 21, verse 1. The Apostle John, writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, he says this, I saw a new heaven and a new earth. Well, that's in Revelation 21. So that means there had to be destruction of the old heaven and the old earth. It needs to be destroyed because it's now under the curse of sin. So John, in chapter 21, talks about a new heaven and a new earth that Jesus makes. So the old one's destroyed before this. You read the context, chapter 20 is about the millennium, the thousand-year reign of Christ, and then right before that ends the tribulation. Jesus returns. And so John says that, that the first heaven and the first earth had passed away at this point, and the sea was no more. So, that might be bad news to some, but I love how Jesus ends. I love how Jesus ends this text, because in verse 35 he says, Hey, there is, there is something that's not going to change. Alright, my friends? There is something that's not going to change. Of all these things that are changing, including the earth and the universe, that's going to change. Jesus says, my word will not change. My words, in fact, he says, my words, plural, will not pass away. And that's very encouraging. Because verse, 30, verse 35 says it's, it's not possible for the Word of God to be broken, including the very words, plural, what Jesus has just been teaching on. These things will not pass away. They're not going to be broken. They'll come to fulfillment, just as I said. Well, that leads me to some obvious application. And number one is this. You can trust God and His Word. Everything that Jesus says, everything that that God says in His Word about Bible prophecy, some of it's already come true. And the, the Bible prophecy that hasn't happened yet, you know what that means? You can also trust that. Everything's come true so far. God's not a liar. He is truth. In fact, Jesus even says He is the truth in John 14. This will happen, and, and therefore you can trust Him. Everything He says, this will happen. It's not going to change. It's not going to be broken. And so it's, it, it's, it's an exhortation in a way for us to read it, to know it. We don't literally have Jesus here with us. We have the Holy Spirit. But Jesus' person isn't here. But we have His words. So it's incumbent upon us to, to know what they say, to read them, to, to meditate upon them. Number two. It's also important that we don't get involved in setting dates for Christ's return. Uh, even Jesus himself says here in verse 36, concerning that day and hour, no one knows. Not even the angels of heaven nor the Son, but the Father only. Many people have shown themselves to be very foolish in setting dates. And it, it's sad, as you read about these people who've done that sort of thing, they've they've given a a really bad name to the cause of Christ. They haven't brought honor to God. 
In fact, they've, well, you can look it up for yourself in various books and on the Internet. It's, it's sad what some have done, particularly the, the new atheists who just have mocked, have mocked the Christians, have mocked the Bible when people try to set dates. Please don't do that. And number three, what we should do is be alert, be ready for King Jesus to return. We don't know exactly when he's coming, but he said he is coming. And as we're going to see in chapter 25, over and over again, Jesus constantly exhorting us, be ready, be watching, I am coming. Be alert. Don't be like one of those those soldiers who's kind of sleeping on duty. Don't be one of them. But be alert, be watchful, be ready. Be, as Paul says in 2 Timothy 4, be loving the thought of his return. For those who do love the thought of his return, there is a crown of righteousness. Number four, in spite of hardships, you and I and everyone who is a believer must endure faithfully to the end. Jesus never promised that the Christian life would be something that's easy, He's never promised us uh, the, the health, wealth, and prosperity gospel. And, and He's certainly not doing it to, to the people who will be living during this time. The Bible says, All who live godly in Christ Jesus shall suffer persecution. We're not, we're not promised an easy life. We don't come to Jesus Christ so that we can you know, have some sort of an easy Life, or we'd have lots of money and we never have any aches and pains and physical issues to deal with. And, you know, <laughs> life is just wonderful. No, that's not what it's about. It's not about the physical. It's about the spiritual. Jesus has promised to deal with your, your greatest problem, which is your sin. He came and He paid the penalty for your sin. He's dealing with the power of sin and one day the presence of sin will be gone. That's why He came. So in spite of hardships, we are over and over again in Scripture exhorted and commanded to endure faithfully no matter what comes, come what may. All the way to the end, faithfully endure. My last point that you can see on the screen is this, urgently work for King Jesus. Urgently work for King Jesus. What, what are you doing with your life? Your life is described like a vapor. The Bible describes your life like a vapor. It's just like a bit of steam coming out of the pot as you're cooking something on the stove. It's short, transient, temporary. What are you living for, my friends? Are you living for just the here and now? Is your affection set on just things of this earth? Or your affections, as Jesus said, set on things above, not on the earth? Are you laying up treasure in heaven where the thieves can't come in and break in and steal it, where where rust can't affect your treasure and where the, the moths aren't going to eat your treasure? Is your treasure laid up in a place that is eternal, that's totally trustworthy and unbreakable? If we urgently work for King Jesus, then we know, we know everything we do in these bodies of ours is going to have eternal value. And so even even when, Jesus says, even when we're giving something as little as a cup of cold water in His name, we know that when we do that sort of stuff, there is reward. And 
eternal reward. So even, don't, please don't just think of, hey, urgently work for King Jesus. That's not just, you know, you know, selling your house and going to some poor place in Indonesia, for example, and ministering to all those poor people up there. Yeah, that's wonderful if God calls you to do that, but if you're here, God's called you to, to minister for King Jesus here and now. Wherever He plants you, serve Him and His cause. Don't just think of you know big stuff, because the reality is, what did Jesus say? If you're faithful in the little, then you'll be faithful in much. So urgently work for King Jesus now, here, wherever God plants you. God's grace be with us as we strive to understand these truths and apply them to our lives. Let's pray.